Chapter Four of Countdown by Kurt Becker, S.J. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Treese. Twenty-two. During the weeks that followed, Ned and practically everybody in Hillstown became more or less used to the sight of the great green trucks with their enigmatic lettering rolling along Route Eighty-Seven on their way to and from the gate on the straightway west of Dumas. The gate, it turned out, was a rather elaborate double affair and the curious who tried to turn into it were met by armed guards who informed them very politely but none the less very firmly that this was private property and unless they had a pass they could not enter one impetuous soul attempted to ignore the guards and drove past only to find himself face to face with a second and rather massive gate blocking his way while he sat there uncertain about what to do the gate swung open and a huge green machine on caterpillar treads rumbled out put its massive front against his bumpers and with the utmost gentleness pushed his car back onto the public highway, and disappeared again. It was perfectly obvious that Best was not interested in having visitors, and after that incident it became noised around that the whole fence was constantly patrolled by men with rifles and savage dogs, whose job it was to keep trespassers out by any and all means. Then one of the enterprising reporters of the Hillstown Herald had a brilliant idea. He stopped at the gate, explained who he was, and asked to see someone in authority. Within a few minutes, a Mr. Will Trask arrived at the gate and explained all. Best was one of the vast Baldwin enterprises, engaged in conducting research in silicates. Silicate testing, he called it. Since some of the tests were quite risky, involving the possibility of explosions and radioactivity, it was necessary for them to be conducted in a sort of splendid isolation, where there would be no danger to anyone other than those employed specifically to run such risks. Mr. Trask regretted the apparent lack of hospitality, but he was sure people would understand. He personally would be very happy to conduct the press around the place. After the reporter had signed a document waiving all claims to damage for personal injuries incurred, he was taken inside and conducted through a vast and bewildering series of prefabricated buildings, humming with machinery too complex and too varied for the uninitiated to understand. The general impression the reporter received was that the place was a beehive of activity, where a small army of healthy-looking, obviously intelligent men, most of whom were astonishingly young, worked with great enthusiasm. The reporter admitted candidly that for the most part he could not understand what they were doing, because no matter how simply they attempted to put things to him, they inevitably wound up using a language so technical and so filled with scientific jargon, involving isotopes, resistances, liquescences, stresses, and the like, that they were soon beyond his depth. He gathered that the work involved considerable risk, but that everybody was very happy about it, because the pay was excellent, and the working conditions were as good as could be expected, and were improving all the time. All in all, it was a very friendly article, and Hillstown breathed more easily. Then forced Sherlock Kingsley and his son arrived. Ned met Robson Kingsley one morning three weeks after school had begun. When the principal escorted a stranger into Mike Buchan's math class and presented him, "'Ladies and gentlemen,' he said formally, "'this is Robson Kingsley, the son of one of our leading citizens, who has just returned to Hillstown after spending a long time in Georgia. I am sure you will make him welcome.' Robson was a tall, dark-haired boy with a faint swagger and a somewhat petulant mouth, which emphasized rather than detracted from his amazing good looks. He was, Ned thought, the handsomest human being he had ever seen. Wide dark eyes, straight nose, firm chin. His head was narrow and shapely, his body beautifully proportioned, and he moved with the grace and lightness of a cat. 
Mike started class, and after five minutes or so, Kingsley interrupted with the question. The teacher's face became quite expressionless as he answered it. Then the new student asked another question, and Mike suggested that it might be better to see him that afternoon after classes were over, and continue with what he had been saying. Ned felt a little uneasy. There was a sudden new tension in the room, a faint atmosphere of uncertainty and hostility, which he found a little distracting. It was not made easier by the fact that Robson Kingsley, in the back of the room, kept moving restlessly and quite audibly. Ned met the senior Kingsley at Owen's home that night. Forrest Sherlock Kingsley was a tall man, slender and distinguished-looking, with a striking head of wavy, snow-white hair, and a ruddy, youthful face. He came, he said, in a rich, bass voice, that flowed out of him with effortless ease, to make amends to Owen. He had sold him the grove of trees in complete good faith, under the impression that it was part of the land acquired from his dear wife. God rest her. He wanted to return half of Owen's original payment, since he understood that Owen had been deprived of almost half of his property by best. Owen, of course, was delighted, and since he had a great deal of charm when he chose to exercise it, dinner that evening was one of the most pleasant meals Ned had eaten since his arrival in Hillstown the previous year, and yet, somehow, he felt that there was something wrong. Until the day his parents had been so tragically killed, Ned's life had been spent in an atmosphere rich in shadings and nuances. His mother, a concert pianist, had been constantly concerned with the interpretation and meaning of music, and this concern had overflowed into her manner of speaking, so that, when she said something, her tone and her gestures revealed her meaning. Ned remembered one occasion when his father wanted a Madame Moosebrugger to give Ned piano lessons. "'I heard Moosebrugger in Prague,' his mother had said in her softly accented English. "'When I was a little girl, she played Litz wonderfully, and that.' she went on, cupping Ned's chin in her hand, and flicking his nose delicately with her slender finger. That takes patience, which is what anybody needs who tries to teach you anything, Buster. Her gesture, together with the laughter and pride in her voice, showed quite clearly that far from thinking Ned a child to any teacher's patience, she regarded him as a remarkable character, who could learn anything without the slightest trouble. So Ned had learned early to look for shadings and intonations, and to listen with great care, not merely to words, but to the overtones and undertones of talk and gesture. And there was something here in the amiable exchange of pleasantries between Owen and the senior Kingsley, which didn't quite ring true. They don't trust each other, he thought. They're maneuvering, looking for an opening, like rustlers. He decided he didn't like either Kingsley and it wasn't until he was in bed that night, looking at a lone red star through a leafy tunnel outside his window, that he realized what had crystallized his dislike. Kingsley had said that Owen had been deprived of half his property by best. Ned had an instinctive dislike for dishonesty. The land had never been Owen's property. End of chapter 4